Hi, it's Leon Dolan, and my new book, The Marriage Sabbatical, is out now and available everywhere. People Magazine chose it as an April pick of the month, one of the best this week, a hopeful take on commitment, they said, and an innovative story about marriage. Mmm, sounds juicy. The Marriage Sabbatical, out now, available everywhere. We are the Satellite Sisters. Welcome to the show. It is Tuesday, November 22nd. I'm Liz Dolan. I am here in Santa Monica, California with my two sisters. Julie, Dallas, Texas, you getting ready for Turkey Day down there? Liz, as I've already explained to you, I've already done Thanksgiving 2000. <laughs> Jeez, Liz. Come sorry, on, Liz. sorry. Okay, I'll back off. And it was wonderful. It's a good, it's a good day. That's my, that, I, I previewed the holiday for everyone and it's a good one. So everybody just settle back, relax and enjoy. Okay. Leon Dolan, you are in Pasadena, California. I will be in your home on Thanksgiving. All good there. How's the Thanksgiving prep going? Well, Liz, uh, you know, I'll tell you a little bit about it in a second. But what I can tell you is the farm in the backyard is yielding just in time for Thanksgiving. You know, we planted that vegetable garden and we are going to have greens aplenty for our salad. I'm going to entrust you to go out and Pick the salad in the backyard. That, oh. It's like the pilgrims here, Liz. It's going to be like the pilgrims. I think you have to dress like a uh, little house on the prairie, too, Liz. Do you have a little gingham dress you can throw yeah. on for the and, holiday? And yeah, I think the thing about arugula. pilgrims is the pilgrims didn't really have any lettuce growing in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. <laughs> yeah, they loved Russian red kale and arugula. They loved it. In fact, remember it. how mom always felt like salad was just inappropriate on Thanksgiving? Yeah, just, I got like, a lot of push act. Yes, yeah, she really, she hated that, Leanne, when you introduced salad <laughs> to the California Thanksgiving dinner. Right, that yeah. was a freaky California innovation that she did Yeah, Yeah, people are very touchy about their side dishes, <laughs> yes. Okay, we have a couple of other things we're going to do today. Oh, our, you know, one of our solid gold satellite misters and favorite guys of all time, Ian Punnett, is going to be on the show coming up. He has a new fascinating true crime book called A Black Night for the Bluegrass Bell. And there are many cool things about this story, but the coolest is the woman who was murdered is actually was a relative of Ian's. That's why he decided someone in the Punnett Gar family had to go track down what really happened in the murder of Verna Gar Taylor. Many of you may know Ian because he was on the air at FM 107 for many years and also on Coast to Coast. So we're very excited that Ian is going to be on the show. Then I have just a couple of news items. One is you cannot believe the like crap I took out of my second bedroom last Friday. <laughs> oh, I think we can. <laughs> I've spent a night there. Yeah, yeah. I think we can. So I got that, and then some uh, breaking sports news that I wanted to share um, coming up. All right, then- but Liz, you asked about Thanksgiving prep, and I've already had some hits and misses. Already, okay. really. Leon, you are, you are a really good cook. How can you have a miss on your Thanksgiving stuff? Because I attempted to bake, Julie. I oh, oh, oh. To bake. well, there, there you have it, Leon. Yeah. yeah, there was going to be a hole in the menu because my mother-in-law will not be joining us. They're going uh, to Northern California to be with uh, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law. So, you know, she usually brings the breads, which as a family, we enjoy. Like the apricot bread, the pumpkin bread, the cranberry bread. Those quick breads that are very nice on the table. So I thought, well, I have extra cranberries. Yesterday, Liz, I made the pate. We're all set. We're good to go. We're having the pate. Uh, I made the cranberry sauce. I'm making the onions, uh-huh. the creamed onions tonight, uh, the gratin of four onions. Mm-hmm. Um, I did that, Leon. I did that on my pre-Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. They were delicious. Yeah, it's delicious. It's delicious. Mm-hmm. Delicious recipe. So, uh, so I thought, oh, I'll just I'll make a quick bread. And this is where I fall down on the baking. Because, of course, I didn't have, I don't have most of the ingredients. I had some. You know, some no flour? You don't have flour and sugar I in your flour, house? I had flour. I had sugar. I only had baking powder. I did oh. not have baking soda. Mm-hmm. So well, they're I, all the same, right? Isn't, isn't that the same? You know what that's, that's, why you, that's why you bring ice at Thanksgiving place <laughs> yeah. because of your question. Uh-huh. I knew they weren't the same, but I thought there might be a substitute because like, oh, getting in the car and going to get baking soda. Who's doing that? So um, and I read on several reliable sites that if you just baking powder has baking soda in it. So if you just triple the amount of baking soda, 
uh, with baking powder. Baking powder. That oh. should work. Oh. Now, it makes it kind that of salty. That seems complete, so. completely wrong. Okay, but yeah, go ahead. I mean, well, it's they're, they're in the same family. So I thought, well, wh why not? I'll try that. <laughs> it came out. It was not like a quick bread. It was like, it was almost like I made biscotti. Like, but with, <laughs> I was like, huh. It, it was like dry. It was like biscotti scones. It just, it was not good. It's not. I, I ate some for breakfast. Like it tastes fine, but it does not have the consistency of a bread or anything like uh -huh. that. So uh -huh. mercifully, my mother-in-law showed up yesterday with a loaf of apricot bread. So uh -huh. I'm off the hook. We're going to have some bread. And then again, she, there's a pie gap now in the house because she makes the pies, right? Yes. And, um, Delicious again, pies. Your mother-in-law makes is a great baker. She is. She really does make unbelievably delicious pies. So I, there would be no reason for me to attempt that um although i did buy some pre-made pie dough that i don't think i'll do anything with i just <laughs> <laughs> you just wanted to show off at the grocery store and just yeah. have in your car just, just, just emergency off. pie whoa. supplies yeah whoa so. she's a baker you just is that what you wanted to do Leanne? just impress people but the other day liz i was at a charity event uh i was not speaking i was a guest uh and it was introducing the speaker but one of our favorite brands, Nothing Bunt Cake, was there. Oh, yeah. And they were selling Thanksgiving cakes. Liz, I ordered us the Bunt Cake. And here's <laughs> the best part of this Bunt Cake. They basically make the Bunt Cake look like a turkey. Oh, my God. That sounds fantastic. Uh, wow. Yeah. That sounds good, Lena. Doesn't it? It's a pumpkin spice Bunt Cake, but then it has, like, turkey feathers in it. It's a cake and a centerpiece, they promise. See, <laughs> see it's one of Edna Dolan's rules of Thanksgiving. You can never have too many turkeys, Lynn. <laughs> there good. you go. So I saw that. I fell for it. So we might not have pies, but we are going to have pumpkin spice bunt cake. So I think we're in good shape. And then I said, you're going to harvest the salad. So it's really, okay. it's really going to be exciting. You know, I saw, I saw a pie thing last night at Bristol Farms that really shocked me. Maybe this has been going on for a while, but I, I rarely walk through that department. And you know how many extra pies they have for Thanksgiving week? At yeah. Bristol Farms, you can buy half a pie. They had boxes. Oh, yeah. They have boxes of just pies cut in half, like half a pie. That's a thing? Yeah, I buy that sometimes. Oh. The boys like pies, so I'll buy that. Oh, so you buy half a pie so they each get a portion and there's nothing left over for you? Exactly. That's exactly why I do it. Yeah. That's I, mean, it. I understand the logic of it. Some people yeah. don't need a whole pie. I just never realized that grocery stores were cutting pies in half for us and selling half a pie. Anyway, the incredible thing is that there's packaging for that. That not yeah. only are they doing that, there's such a demand that the box companies created a half a pie package. <laughs> I think. <laughs> It's for sort of singletons, right? A half a yeah. pie. Yeah, it would be yeah. gluttonous to eat a whole pie. But a half right. a pie, that's not so bad. That's well, it's sort of halfway, bad. Julie, because you can always buy a slice of pie and you can buy a pie. I just didn't realize you could buy half a pie. But yeah, yeah, yeah it was good. People love pie, Liz. They'll take any the pie any kind of way. They love pie. You know, but Leon, it is interesting. We were talking about uh, Thanksgiving sides. I was conferring with friends here what they were doing, what their traditions are. You know, one of the big things in Texas that people like to do is they like to have tamales at Thanksgiving oh, yeah. as a side. Now, yeah. see, I I would be, be totally in favor of that. Yeah, so, no, so it's a New Year's it, Day thing here. That's yeah. that's a traditional day for tamales, but that sounds it's corn. It's delicious. That sounds Maybe good. I want to like. I don't know if you want to. Because uh, if let let if if Liz is I get choked wow. up thinking about Liz in your garden. If Liz <laughs> is going to be picking your lettuce, you might want to back up side because the salad. <laughs> you can do it, Liz. I'll, I'll have some it. tamales in the trunk of my car. I would that? like to know. I would like to know people's best side. I know we've done a, a, a Thanksgiving side dish contest, but what is your favorite thanksgiving what is side you know and and obviously i know people like i saw many people with mini marshmallows in their shopping carts yesterday uh so that you know the sweet potatoes with the mini marshmallows but i, th I like to hear about some of these more exotic th uh, sides that people do at thanksgiving okay well that's a good uh, there's there's still time for people to share some ideas and some recipes so if you post that in the facebook group today people can just put in their favorite sides so okay the uh people are 
desperate on Thanksgiving morning to figure out what to do, we'll have a whole list there for you. As well as, of course, we already posted Mom's Turkey Tetrazzini because yeah. from last Tuesday's show, so many people asked about that. Uh, okay, well, in other home-based news, I did a major dig out last Friday of the Satellite Sisters Technical Operations Center, uh, which is also known as my second bedroom. And uh, I posted on Facebook the fact that I had four big boxes full of books. We get sent a lot of review copies of books. And, you know, most of them make it to my car trunk, but not up into my home. Some of them make it up into my home, into the second bedroom, and then they never go anywhere from there. So I had quite a few, and these are brand new, beautiful books that I've probably gotten all in the, in the last year. So I created up four of those, uh, slipped in a copy of You're the Best, just as a gift, and took them to the Santa Monica Public Library, because my public library here, not only do they take book donations, but they have a year-round store where if it's books that they're not going to put in the collection or they don't need, they use it as a fundraiser uh, for the that's, library itself. That's terrific, Liz, That that because many libraries won't take older books, you know, won't yeah. take books. Yeah. So it's a real problem what to do with books. Yeah. It is. So I solved that problem. But then the other thing when you're doing a dig out is just the documentation that you keep around you in your life. I'm my This room is not a mess. Even though I'm a slob, I'm constantly putting things into files and putting them into the closets or putting them into my drawers. But I realized I had like 15 years worth of bank statements and income tax copies and all of this kind of stuff. And you really, really don't need that anymore. You know, there's a certain, isn't the rule like you need six or seven years of, you know, your financial documents. Well, I moved into this, uh, this apartment in 2007. So I basically had like 10 years of stuff plus whatever I moved in with me, which was probably another five years of stuff. So I just decided this is going to be shred central. I put like big boxes on the floor as I'm going through every file. I'm throwing things into the shred box or the things that is just safe garbage. That was a separate box. But, and I'm sad to admit that there were plenty of bank statements that I had never even opened. Oh, well, I'm going (laughs) to... You know, you know how you do that. You just yeah, you just too late now, Liz. Too late. That's right. So, so that all went. Don't open them now. Don't open them now. (laughs) That bank statement from 2009 is not going to do you any good. Unless it's unless it's from Wells Fargo, because (laughs) they were pushing a lot of bad product there. So you might be able to get a refund. Wait, I don't have all these uh, accounts. Where these people? (laughs) So I did all of that, and then I had another huge file. That was all mom and dad's medical records and financial documents. That was a whole category. I have a whole, I have a whole like closet full of their stuff too. Yeah. So, So, you know, and the, this Thanksgiving will be the fourth anniversary of the day our mom died. And I just, you know, I had just been hanging on to that stuff. I don't, I don't. Imagine anyone's ever going to knock at my door and need to see that. So I went through all of that and threw away everything except the things that I thought had some family historical value, you know, like dad's discharge papers from the U.S. Army and a few things like that that I had. Anyway, once I got it all in the boxes and bags, I took it to Staples where they have the mega shredder. I have like a little one piece of paper at a time shredder, but that was going to take me 10 days to do. I go to uh, I go to Staples. I had 55 pounds worth of documents (laughs) shredded. It felt so good to just put it all on the scale. Then, you know, they have to feed it in. You have to make sure there aren't any paper clips or binder clips in there. But 55 pounds worth of stuff, it is gone. So... Do you watch it? Do you watch them shred it? Well, no, it just goes into the big locked garbage can. Oh, okay. You know, oh, okay. And then all they right. take it out. And I, then they sell, then they sell all Liz's yeah. information to <laughs> yeah, Wiki. Yeah, okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. yeah I would helps. love to watch them shred it. That would yeah. be even more emotionally satisfying. Uh, but no, so feeling, feeling pretty good about that. The dig out continued, but I was amazed once I got rid of all of those books and all of those documents, the room still looks very full. 
Yeah. <laughs> you got to try. You have a lot of magazines in there, too. Like, oh, those are already gone. Part. Those are gone. Those went in the garbage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so it continues. Now that I'm now that I'm no longer watching, you know, cable news, I just have so much time. <laughs> so much time. So much time. <laughs> it, it has opened up a lifetime of time for me. Uh, so, okay, so I got that done. Then another thing, speaking of not watching cable news, uh, if you uh, were watching, you know, what was happening in the world last night, if you thought all of the action in New York was at the Trump Tower, uh, you are wrong. The, the, the good action was over at the Marriott Marquis because it was the the Golden Goggles Awards, which I happened to watch the live webcast of that. Now, in, in case you don't know what the Golden Goggles are, those are the awards that USA Swimming gives out to the members of USA Swimming, to the team that went to Rio for the best performances of the year. And that just brought me back to a simpler, happier time. And now <laughs> it was, it was good, Liz. It was good. They, so <laughs> that, it's all posted online. If you want to watch the Golden Goggles, the host was supposed to be Bob Costas, but then he couldn't make it. And then it was supposed to be Dan Hicks, and then he couldn't make it. So the last minute stand in, was our man Rowdy Gaines, which I was, Oh, fantastic. Yes. So, and Rowdy was on our flight coming home from Rio, Julie. Remember, we told you that, that we were, we were sort of- I know, up close and personal. We were stalking him in the Miami airport to see if he knew anything about Ryan Lochte that we did not know. But I just wanted to say, as far as Olympic performances, uh, Leon and I get kind of some special award because we nailed it, particularly on one thing. The Golden Goggles last night for best races of the year, so single performance in a single race, went to Simone Manuel for the 100-meter free. Okay. And, and to which Michael, you saw, right? Which we saw. And Michael yeah. Phelps for the 200-meter butterfly, which we saw. Which so, we saw. So the two best races of the year were, <laughs> that was the night that Leanne and I and Leanne's family, we were there, Julie. We were in the house. Remember, well, we told you we were sitting with all the USA swimming parents. I, it was I know, like being a USA swimming parent. No, that was so fantastic. <laughs> we talk about it every, every time I see Brooks, we talk about like how great the swimming was and Michael Phelps was and just screaming like, you know, like their 10 year old kids in the pool. That was just great. Those were emotional wins for both of those. Those are both great swims and both emotional wins. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yes. Oh, so, I'm glad to hear we we only got tickets for one night of swimming. I, I know. You, that's apparently you know how to, you know how to pick it. You that's what I think. I was just, so that's why we get a special award for sticking the landing. That was the only night that we could get tickets into the aquatic center, and we saw the best female performance race of the year and the best male race of the year. And if you go online, if you just hashtag USA Swimming, you'll see all the other categories they have, like best relay performance and most inspirational performance. And it did just make the whole thing made me super happy because, the you know, the Rio Olympics in general, but the swimming specifically in Brazil was so much fun. And the USA team did such a such a good job. So congratulations to Michael, uh, to Simone, to our man, Rowdy. And to us, Leanne. <laughs> well, that you. obviously is what you guys are going to talk about at Thanksgiving meal. So you don't yeah. have to worry. There you go. You got your job. We're just going to re- – it's good. good plan, Julie. Just relive Rio. Happy to, yeah. happy to do it. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. All right. Last night I had a cultural experience. Um, uh, and I had never been to a, a Korean funeral. So my friend Susan's father died last week, and he was a well-respected member of the Los Angeles Korean community, which is a huge community here in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And her father was 86. He was uh, one of the first Koreans to go to USC. You know, when he emigrated here from Korea, went to USC and and uh, got his master's at Oregon and was really a leader in the Korean community here. So I knew that it was going to be like a well-attended you know, big deal funeral. And, um, and I was happy to be there to support my friend, Susan. And she was the oldest sister. She was sort of in charge of everything. And it was a lot of responsibility just personally, but then also culturally, because there are so many layers of protocol in the Korean community. So it was, it was great to learn about his contribution, but also sort of interesting to observe a couple of cultural things. And I just wanted to pass along a few things from Korean funerals that I thought were fantastic. Um, first of all, I, I know this seems dumb, but everyone was in black. And at a lot of funerals in California, people don't wear black. 
And I don't you understand. Don't? <laughs> no. No. Well. Well, I know, I know, Julie. I know you think we're all nuts, and maybe it's cultural. Like Hispanic funerals, they do not all wear black; they wear brighter colors, and you know, part of it is that. So, I just felt right at ease because I had my, I have my official funeral outfit now. I just went with it, and I was, I was right at ease in in the Korean funeral home. Mm-hmm. Okay, two. This is a fantastic idea. Apparently, in the Korean culture, it's very common when the elders get to be of a certain age, they decide they have what's my friend Susan referred to as death photos. I was like, what is that? And she said, no, you set up a photo shoot for the elders in your community when they're looking good and still feeling good. You you hire a professional photographer and they take some great photos of them while they're still healthy so that when they die, those are the photos you can use on the funeral program and in the slideshow. Oh, okay. Wow. That is a great idea. You know, it's very, that's very thoughtful, I think. You know, it's a very nice way to, you know, to honor it because when someone passes, that's such a, like, you know, such a moment and there's, and you don't want to be scrambling around trying to find a decent picture of, of the person who died. So I like it also shows an acceptance of death that I think not every culture embraces. Like Julie, what if someone came to you and said, we would like to take your death photos now? How would that make, how would that make you feel like, well, I, I, I kind of feel like, okay, I'm still, I'm still looking. Okay. So sure. Fine. Do it now. Okay. Lock it in now. And these were happy photos. They weren't maudlin or weird. They took them on the beach. They had all the grandkids there. Like it was a whole family thing. And then they had more formal portraits and so it just made for a really lovely slideshow. And as we know, you do have to scramble for those photos. Yes. You, know, you don't have, you have a lot to do in the days afterwards. So yes. I just thought that was, she had told me about this two or three years ago. And I sort of stored it away. And then last night on the program, there was a handsome shot of him. You know, he lived to be 86. So he looked his age. It wasn't like they had to go back, you know, to a photo from 1974. And, yes. and they had the proper photos. He had three obituaries and on all the Korean papers here. And, you know, sometimes with obituaries, you need a straight on shot, a headshot. They can't be looking left or right. I We discovered that with dad and mom. We had to really search hard for that. So anyway, I just thought that was a good tradition. Yeah. And then it was a relatively, um, it was long, half in English, half in Korean. And then there's a very formal receiving line and everybody, I happened to be seated in the absolute last seat to go through the receiving line. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. But so I watched everybody go through the receiving line and a lot of bowing and honoring the family. But then everybody goes to dinner. Everybody gets a Korean dinner. And that's <laughs> fantastic. You're recommending that? <laughs> yeah. Because, and here's what I liked about it. So it's sort of the last one to show up at dinner. It's just eat and run. There's no more chit chat. You've done the honoring. You just come. It was like every, the buffet tables were set up. This was a North Korean Chinese restaurant. And so all the food was just on the tables. People just ate and left. I like that too. There's no lingering. <laughs> you don't have to go see the family anymore. Like you've done your honoring. Now you're just eating dinner. So I was like, okay, excellent. So it was, it was eye-opening. It was a good cultural experience. Okay. Well, remember that when your time comes, Leanne. That's, yeah, <laughs> just just don't linger over like the ham sandwich over the honey baked ham. I mean, you can still serve honey baked ham. I don't need to go uh, to a Chinese restaurant, but I just thought that was interesting. Like they've already paid their respects. Now we're eating. <laughs> like, <laughs> it keeps like things that. straight. I like that. I like yeah. that. Things are in their right categories. Yeah. Well, I, I did have to ask a couple of Susan's friends or my contemporaries, like before the dinner, I was like, is this a very formal thing? Like, basically, how long does this take? Because it was already 9 p.m. It was an evening funeral, which is unusual. And I and I was thinking, oh, is this going to be, is there speeches? Or they're like, no, people just come and eat. I was like, okay, I'm in. I'm going to do it. So uh, anyway, just thought I would pass that pass that along. Think about it this well, Thanksgiving. Yeah. Maybe some special folks. That's so, a good discussion topic at Thanksgiving. <laughs> it is. There you go. The New York Times had a funny uh piece this week about like things you could talk about other than the election and it was a list i'll put a link on our facebook um page it was a list of like science topics you Mm -hmm. could talk about like anything like cool (laughs) things happening in science that like no one 
could possibly object to. So it was filled <laughs> with like facts and figures about going to Mars or the bullet train or things like that. It's totally neutral. So just fly this death photo thing over over the family. See how that goes. See how that goes this holiday. Well, as our mother always said, good planning makes for good fun. So it sounds like that is a, a well-planned funeral tradition that everyone in the family could feel good about. I know your friend Susan was such a good friend to you yeah. when mom died and then shortly thereafter when dad died. So it's nice that you could be there for her. Yes. Yeah, it was nice. It was, it was, I was happy Wasn't to Wasn't she it. constantly bringing you food when mom was constantly, sick? constantly. So that's the other tip I would say. Um, her, her, when her father died the very next day, I remembered how important it was to have sandwich fixings. Uh, remember, Julie, I brought sandwich yes. fixings when mom died. And then when yes. dad died at the funeral, after dad's funeral, uh, someone sent a deli tray to my brother's house and it was like a miracle. So that next morning I woke up, I went to the good deli. Uh, I went to Gelson's and I just bought roast beef and all these sandwich fixings and showed up at her house. And she was like, thank you so much. Oh, so that's, that's another tip. Yeah, yeah, but I was... In fact, her daughter leaned over last night and said, I had a roast beef sandwich before I came. <laughs> so I like, okay. That's good. That's nice to know that your gift was yeah. yes. appreciated. And, yeah. and food always yeah. matters. Food always yeah. matters. All right. Yeah. Well, speaking of traditions and holidays and things, we're going we're gonna to take a break and bring Ian in. But first, we want to welcome a new sponsor to Satellite Sister. Oh, actually, we've had Harry's before, no, right? No, not, so, not a new sponsor. So Harry's is back to Satellite Sisters, you guys. What's the deal? Yeah, this is our second holiday season with Harry's Liz. And, you know, we are, it's a shaving company. It's a men's grooming company. It was started by two guys, Jeff and Andy. Uh, they were buddies and they were fed up with being overcharged for razors. So they started their own razor company to give people what they deserve, which is a great shave at a fair price. And last year we worked with Harry's in the holidays and it's not obvious satellite sisters, men's grooming products. But here's the deal is we may be the satellite sisters, but we have a lot of men in our lives. Mm -hmm. We have husbands, we have sons, we have nephews, we have sons-in-law, we have co-workers, and it can be hard to buy presents for men. Right, Jewel? You know. I'm telling you, you my that. son, Will, loves this gift. I gave it to him last Christmas, Leon, and when he came for our early Thanksgiving, which I've already told you, told you about, <laughs> he wanted to know if I had any of the Harry's razors in my house. Now, I also told you last year I bought a gift, a holiday gift to keep in my house to put in my guest room, you know, just to have like as a special amenity for men that may be visiting, you know, like sons and various, oh, that's anyway, a good idea. I just wanted to have that. So you don't, you know, it's a nice gift for anyone to get, but he loves it, Leanne. He loves well, it. Julie, this holiday, they have a really special offering and it's, a, I got a sneak peek at it because my boys and my husband like it too. So I was happy to get the holiday box last week. Okay. You know, their packaging is beautiful. It's manly. Yes. You don't have to wrap it ladies. Cause it already looks fantastic. It says it looks very high start. quality too. That's what yeah. I like. About. Yeah. And super like, will go well for the hipsters, go well for the nephews and sons and sons-in-law, but totally appropriate for your husband as well, or your spouse or your brother or your dad. Um, okay. So in the package this year, Julie, you get a really nice blue chrome razor. Uh, razor. Oh. It's got a midnight blue chrome handle. And you know, it has that really nice weight, the Harry's razors. Yes, they're, they do. They're, they're high quality, you know, and you can actually have the bla the um, razor personalized. If you want if you want to go the extra mile for the monogramming, you know, our sister-in-law Mary loves to monogram <laughs> and personalize things. <laughs> that is that is an extra step we never take, but people in never, our family do. never. But okay. So you get the midnight blue chrome razor. Okay, you get three of Harry's German engineered five blade cartridges. All right, so the German engineered ding, ding, ding. Okay. You get the foaming shave gel that smells so amazing. I think my son Colin actually eats it. Like he goes through it. I'm like, are you eating the shave And the box is absolutely beautiful. It's like a, a deep blue green, very manly, very masculine. Okay. Nice. And all of that for $30. So it's a, it's a good price point too. You know, yeah. that's, it's, I mean, it's a nice gift to give, uh, to give and it's, very nice to get one for your house. Liz, now that you've done the bit dig out in your guest bedroom, I yes. think you should get one. Okay. All right. They, 
They also offer other uh, um, handles and sets starting at 10 bucks. That would also make great sto stocking stuffers. But, you know, it's $30 for the holiday box if you're just anyone. But if you're part of the Satellite Sisterhood, you get $5 off. Okay? So we deal. want you to get that. Um, so the, the website is harrys.com. And that's Harry like the name. H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. And then you use the special promo code SISTERS at checkout. And you're going to get $5 off your order. So check out the holiday box. And there's a free shipping. Let me, what's the information on the free, free shipping? shipping ends on December 9th. So okay. you have to do, so do this now while you're thinking of it. All right. So harrys.com. Go right now to get the limited edition, edition holiday shave set while supplies last. And then if you enter the code SISTERS, you get $5 off harrys.com code sisters and thanks harrys for being uh, a solid gold satellite mr supporter of satellite sisters uh, for the last year we've really enjoyed our relationship with you people really love your products and we're happy that you're part of the satellite sisters team thanks harrys so stay with us we will be right back with ian punnett to talk all about his new book a black knight for the bluegrass bell This is Liz, and 80 years ago, on November 6th, 1936, Verna Gar Taylor was found dead of a gunshot wound in a ditch on the side of a road in Kentucky. The mystery of her death was never solved until now, Satellite Sisters. Our friend, broadcaster, writer, instructor of multimedia journalism, and most of all, solid gold satellite, Mr. Ian Punnett. <laughs> Ian Punnett is the man who put the whole dramatic story together in his new book, A Black Knight, for the Bluegrass Bell, Ian Punnett, welcome back to Satellite Sisters. Isn't it funny to think that we've known each other for what? I mean, it's like 15 years now, right? Through, ma through many yeah. careers, might I say. You're, so <laughs> yeah. you're solving murders now, Ian. You have really <laughs> moved on. Well, we have, but I mean, I love the fact that we still get together and do this after all of this time and um, and all the different places we've traveled together, too. So thank you for having me on. It's great. And yes, this story is it's just part of my DNA. I've been hearing it my whole life. I, it, it was a bedtime story in a way as okay. I grew up. That's kind of, that's kind of <laughs> creepy. So explain the tale. Vernegar Taylor is a family story. Yeah, my grandmother's first cousin and somebody that my mother even remembered from when she was a girl, uh, they was uh, was murdered by the former lieutenant governor of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Uh, he was at the time the sitting adjutant general of the Kentucky National Guard. He was a player. He was a well-known political figure. He wasn't particularly well-liked. He had a big personality and he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And he had kind of a a well-known violent streak. He was a bit of a belligerent drunk, but he was also kind of a charmer. And my 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 grandmother's first cousin was a 40-year-old widow. She was beautiful. She was accomplished. She ran her own business uh, that she had inherited from her husband, a, a dry cleaning and laundry business. She owned a car. She owned her house. Um, she, they had a phone in the house, which was pretty unusual for 1936. She was raising two um, strong-willed teenage daughters, but that was going well, and she had a loving family, and she allowed this guy to propose to her, and she was weighing whether or not she would accept the proposal of General Henry Denhart, um, the former lieutenant governor, when she went to break up with him that night and never came home. Yeah. Well, you say she was murdered, but that was never proven, right? So tell us about the guy. Tell us about Henry Denhart, a little more about him. And why well, also, why did you decide you wanted to spend years digging into the files on this? Right. <laughs> this was just a, a family obsession or what's the deal? Kind of. I mean, like, as you as you may know, I mean, the um, so I'm a gar um, and it was so important that family name to carry on that I, I named my oldest son Gar. In fact, when when Marjorie and I went on our first date um, and I could see the way the wind was blowing on this right away, I gave her a caveat up front. I just want to say, hun, um I'm going to have to name a child Gar. It's just have to be. <laughs> on and your I, first date, you, you did that? On our that first Marjorie, she's just 
so wonderful. She is well, a spe- <laughs> she is a special person. But no, but wait, she said, "Oh, that's great because I have to name a child Campbell." Oh. And she said, "So those will be the names of our kids." And they are. <laughs> but for years you've been calling them Itchy and Scratchy. Those are not their real names. Is that <laughs> I can't That was the most astounding fact in the book that your children are not actually named Itchy and Scratchy. No, those are the names they got at baptism. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the, the church was much more flexible by this time. And they, um, so the, the the point is just that Gar was really central to me, and understanding this story was something that was really big to me. And I had the the fact that it was never proven in court that she was murdered, and the the fact that the defense was allowed to offer this crazy suicide theory that she somehow shot herself with her right hand through her left side yeah. and 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 a couple of other things that went along with it just to confuse the jury I, I, that always bugged me it always it piqued my sense of justice and i always felt like that should be righted and then i i started studying true crime writing when i was getting my phd and that just i just said you know what i've just got to write one <laughs> i mean i just got to do it and and that's when I was, you know, I, I got to be friendly with Anne Rule, and, and she was very encouraging of that idea. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about Anne Rule for a second, because she's certainly the queen of true crime. So how did you get to know her? Did you just reach out to her as a fan? You know, I have to say I'd read a, The Stranger Beside Me, but I had not read a lot of true crime books. I was very interested in the true crime magazines of the 1930s and 40s and 50s because they all featured stories about Vernegar Taylor. Um, There were were over 15, I think, different stories about Verna and her her death. And they were always pro-Verna. They were always stories talking about what a raw deal she got and how this guy had gotten away with, with, with murder. And the true crime magazines were on the story immediately. I mean, there there were several published even before Denhart's trial. So that was my interest was was the the magazine form of true crime. And Anne Rule was the best known and one of the last well known writers of true crime magazine articles. And then she became the queen of true crime with her books. So I really just contacted her to talk about the day-to-day life of a true crime magazine writer because she was one of the last people left alive to interview on the subject. Wow. Oh, sure. You were really just testing out your idea for the book. <laughs> Come on, Ian. <laughs> just floated a, th- a few theories. Come on. Well, no, honestly. You're, you're talking it, to the satellite system. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no. Honestly, what it was was originally I was going to use this story as part of my dissertation. Oh, and okay. I, I was thinking about writing the 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 story both the the Angar I was trying writing about the Vernagar story my mother's name is Angar so sometimes I slip so the Vernagar story I was going to write it for my dissertation as a how traditional journalism would cover it and then as true crime would cover it and and then it just got too complicated and that's really when I was talking with 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 Ann Rule and she said no she said just you know it, there's no story too old to be turned into a good true crime book and that's fascinating and one of the things she said to you is that the most important thing is to give the victims a voice and that really struck me Ian because I think that still gets lost in our cases today and on Satellite Sisters the other day we were just talking about Amanda Knox and who remembers who got murdered in that case or obviously the OJ case, you know, the, the person who was being tried for the crime just completely overtakes the actual victim of the crime. Do you think it's because Verna was in your family that you felt particularly committed to giving her a voice? Yeah. And I think the fact that we knew more things than had ever been said publicly. So, you know, the fact that part of what, allowed Denhart to get away with this suicide theory is that she was a very discreet, good Methodist woman. She was not out to embarrass him. She did not make a big deal about his proposal. It didn't appear in the church bulletin. There was nothing public. She was very private. Um, And because of that, he could not have known how many people she had told that that Uh was the night she was going to break up with him. He couldn't have known that. So he steps in it, really, when he starts to make this big deal about how she committed suicide because 
they couldn't be married. Um, that he had no way of knowing um, all the things that the family knew. And that's part of the reason why I felt like I had a, an edge on telling this story. You know, Ian, this is Leanne, and this book is really deeply researched. And I, you know, I'm a writer, I write fiction, but some, it has a little bit of history. And one of the hardest things to do is to edit, to know when to stop researching and start <laughs> writing, and then to know when to edit out the stuff that may be too, too much detail. Did you struggle with that? Or did you have a sense of, you know, this is what people need to know, and this is what they should know, but... Are you holding back anything? How did you work with that? Yeah, well, I certainly had. Yeah, I mean, it was a longer book when I finished, as 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 I'm sure all of our works are. And remember, I'm a reader, so I know your stuff. Yeah, and yeah. I and I appreciate the fact that that you pick up on that because I will tell you this: this part I feel very strongly about is there's still there's a this is a southern book. Uh, you know, a Black Knight for the Bluegrass Bell is really written from a Southern perspective. Half of my family Southern. I spent every summer in the South. I know about, I just kind of have, I lived there in Tennessee and Georgia, and I, I still own property in South Carolina. And, and so I wrote it from a Southern perspective, which means I talk a lot about family mm-hmm. and family names and things which to a lot of Yankees, their eyes just kind of glass over when you start going into my mama's cousin, my mama's mama's <laughs> yeah. mama's cousin. What <laughs> once removed? Nice accent, Leanne. Thank oh. you. That's my that's my all-purpose <laughs> southern accent. I apologize. No, no, but this is what would happen. So I would give the book to different editors along the way, and I could always tell where, where they were from because the the people from the South go, "Oh, I love that part about the family and how you." kept talking about the Southern currency of names, family names. And, and then people, I had this friend from Michigan who was really going, get all that crap out of there. <laughs> <laughs> hey Ian, this is Julie. I was wondering about when you went back and you started to unearth all this stuff that had been, you know, sort of people hadn't talked about in a while. What was the reaction in the town? I mean, were people like, yeah, we got to get to the bottom of this. We're so happy you're doing this. Or did you meet resistance? Yeah, well, I, I met I met resistance from you know, over the years, and my mother took the brunt of it. Was resistance within the family? Um, the, oh. the the direct ancestors of of Verna and her brothers, who, as you know, play a, a key part in this story. Um, the they didn't they've never wanted publicity for this. You know, there's a, there's a, there was a song that was written about it in the 1930s called the Gar Ballad. It ended up being sung on the Grand Old Opry, and the we used to sing it. Really? Almost. I know you have the you have the lyrics in the book. I was trying to imagine what it sounded like. Would you like to just sing a few bars for us? Could you sing it yeah, now? Yeah, we. This was <laughs> when I told you that this was like our bedtime story. This was our bedtime. This was our lullaby. We would often, my brother, my oldest brother, Spencer, and I would sing it. My mom would sing it. Um, it, it goes like this. Uh, I'll just sing it up to the chorus. <laughs> so just a couple. Um, oh, the harvest moon was shining on the streets of Shelbyville when General Henry Denhart met his fate. For the Garboys was awaiting, and they was armed to shoot to kill. And death and General Henry had a date. For pretty Vernagar was a laying in her grave in LaGrange, just 16 miles away. And folks from miles around say the general shot her down because she wouldn't let him have his way. Wow. That's a cheery that, little ditty. Yeah, <laughs> that, is, that explains so much about your. About you, Ian Punnett. It yeah. really does. We just had like twinkle, twinkle, little star. <laughs> and it was off key. Like, you, that is. But to, to circle back, so that the family was kind of embarrassed by that song. And when, yeah. when, my, when my mother and my, it was originally, my mother started first digging up a lot of this research, which I ended up using. Um, when my mother started into it, she got nasty notes. Um, and they were like, why are you doing this, Angar? Why don't you just let this be? There's no reason to be writing this story. And, wow. and that, that, that I tried contacting several of my cousins, and they wouldn't talk to me. 
Hmm. Well, every great true crime story has unexpected twists, and A Black Knight for the Bluegrass Bell has several, which we are not going to reveal here. But I do love the twist in your research of Finding Folder 8, Ian. Yes, I know. Okay, tell us, explain what Folder 8 was for you as the researcher. Okay, so... I, I, part of this is just, it was just kismet. I mean, it was just, I was, and I was lucky. I had, I had been to Louisville and I'd been to LaGrange and I'd been to the site and I've done a bunch of other things and I was struggling. And this was still at a phase when I really, I was thinking I was going to make this part of the PhD dissertation, not a, a separate book. And I got a call from my cousin, Heather Corella, and she lives in Shelbyville, which, as you know, is where uh, Denhart was shot down, where he, he was prevented from perjuring himself a second time, as we like to say. Um, and, uh, and she called me to say, I just saw an article in the, local, in the Louisville Courier-Journal. They have uncovered the trial transcripts and boxes of uh, documents related to the, to the murder. You've got to get here. And, wow. this, and this stuff had never been uncovered before. Nope. And I was literally on a plane. I called, I I picked up, dropped the phone, picked it up, called. I was on a plane in about eight hours and I was at the Filson Historical Society, which is in Louisville. And they pulled out all the boxes, which were dusty and, and they were still cataloging them. And they were, um, they had gotten this donation from a guy named Wendell Berry. Does that name mean anything to y'all? No, no, no. He's a fairly well-known Southern poet um, and a writer of he uh, his family is very prominent in Kentucky. Um, he was poet laureate or something. He had all these different titles. He's really very accomplished. And but his father, John Marshall Berry, was the lead attorney for Denhart, and they donated all the boxes of that they found in the basement, including the complete trial transcript and this thing called Folder Eight, which was just written in pencil. Um, it looked like a woman's script in pencil, and it just said folder eight. And and what it contained were all of these documents that were behind the scenes collections of of commentary made by Den Hart that they were using to prep for the for the upcoming trial. So they he he essentially wrote out the narrative himself. Then on top of that, somebody goes through and corrects it, and they cross out things that they don't want him to say. Um, and then they're writing questions in the margin to set up the parts that they want him to say on the stand. So they knew full well he was changing his story to fit the trial. The attorneys did. Um, and I, I don't think that's to their credit. But at the time, it didn't break any laws. And it's also hmm. the place where it obviously was the clearest to you that there was the, the narrative that the family had, that she was this discreet, church-going woman close to her family. But in Folder 8, you start to see this picture of her emerge what you describe as a sex mad cougar gold digger starts to emerge <laughs> in folder because that's basically that's basically the defense right is yep. that she was a sex mad cougar gold digger and that's well, all in the margins in folder eight well that's what they start to cross out because they don't want him to say that from the stand so even though that's his testimony right that's what he starts to say his attorneys are smart enough to realize that won't play. So they, even though that's in the folder and even though that was part of his story was, oh yes, she confessed to me that she was sleeping with the, the, the guy, the delivery truck driver for the, uh, uh, you know, for the, the laundry. And you know what? I had many happy endings with her too on certain occasions. And he was starting to sell that. And the attorneys, they don't go anywhere near that when he gets up to testify. And so it well, goes times to- have changed, haven't they? Because that would <laughs> that would be a defense now. Well, but that's just the point. So yeah. after after the hung jury, um, he is he's given he he is given a, a reprieve. Obviously, he's he's not convicted and he spends the summer, though, fine tuning that other story. And oh. he starts to even amp it up even further. Um, and so the Folder 8 was the first glimpse of this dark side of Denhart and the, and, the, and the extent that he was willing to go to really – to just ruin her reputation if it meant that he could save his skin. It's, it's fascinating. 
the uh, so true crime. It's fascinating to me. You talked about the magazines. You look at the popularity now of true crime uh, podcasts and obviously TV shows and everything. What is it that we love so much about these stories? You're, you know, Mr. PhD. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, help us understand why we are so drawn to understanding these kinds of tales and wanting to know, like, who done it and all of the details. Well, we learn about life through death. I mean, it, in, to sum that up. And, and journalism in its proper, you know, kind of objective sense, or at least how it perceives itself as objective, sanitizes n- murder narratives of emotions, rightfully mm-hmm. so, perhaps, to follow the, you know, the rules of, of journalism. But that's, it's, it actually put it, it puts it farther away from where we as humans live. And we live much closer to the way true crime tells stories, which is fraught with emotion and, off, and pushes for guilt and innocence in a way that journalism is not supposed to do. Right. I mean, the journal, proper journalistic perspective, you give both sides and that's it. But true crime has always taken a position. True crime is 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 advocacy journalism, perhaps some people might say, or I would I think it's even journalism kind of decentered. And it, it, it allows for people to tell the story the way they feel it. Um, and that's where we get our sense of justice. We want justice. We all cleave, you know, to, I think most of us do anyway. And we, we don't think of when somebody dies and especially women, it's really important that we understand what we can from that story and to try to learn from it. And that's why in a lot of ways, true crime is much closer to uh, folk tales or fairy tales mm-hmm. in the way in which they try to be, it tries to be very instructive and tries to warn people. And Anne Rule herself told me this. She was very proud of this. She said, I have saved many more lives than the deaths I've had to write about. Mm. Wow. And it was, it was her mission. And it was especially when it came to women. That, and so the idea is you would read the book and see yourself in that and get out of a bad situation. Get out of a bad situation. Stop hitchhiking. Understand. <laughs> okay. The, I've got to stop hitchhiking. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you could you Lee and I know you can remember a time in the seventies when that was not considered a big deal. And no, I, know, I, don't, I don't get it. Why do we tell we get in Uber cars every day? Okay, uh, that's right. I don't get an Uber. Yeah, you're. I'm with you, Joel. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. Marjorie, my wife, used to be very against Uber for just that same reason, and she's told me she said, I, "I feel terrible, but I totally love Uber now." She said, <laughs> "I've done it like four times." She said, "It's great." I'm with Marjorie. I feel like I don't know any more about a taxi driver than I know about an Uber driver. So, right. you know, just gonna... she, what he does is group Uber because she figures there's no way they could kill both of them. So that's right. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. She's got yeah, a very good... good moral. Maybe. Yeah. And, but, and, you and, know, Ian, I think I think Leanne's right when she says that the kind of lurid details that true crime has. Uh, that does make its way into the courtroom now. When you when think about the trials we see, again, think about OJ or think about Amanda Knox or, you know, the stuff that might have stayed in folder eight now does actually de- become the defense narrative in many, many cases. Yeah, and you, and, I, and in a lot of ways, I, I, you'd have to, I mean, I think there are examples probably of, of when that's always been true, but now it's just probably much more often true than it used to be. It, the, the rules of court, like the rules of journalism, will always prevent certain types of testimony and certain types of evidence. True crime isn't restricted by that. Mm-hmm. So true crime lays out all the cards. And that's, that's part of the role, I think, of, of true crime writers is they really see it as a chance to kick over the rock. And um, and there is a public side to prosecutions that are much tidier, perhaps than than and 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 true crime can take a position sometimes that says this person was unjustly convicted, right? We have making a murderer on Netflix, and it was yeah. all about that. Or it can take a position of this person has been unjustly let free, such as you know the, the uh, on HBO's story, The Jinx, with uh-huh. about Robert. right, right. And so both true crime narratives. But they both take a different position because it's all about pursuing justice and to, to circle back to giving the victims a voice. And true crime is victim focused. It's not the best of true crime. And there's plenty out there that get, you know, one way or another. But that's true in any genre. But true crime, you know, dominantly is a pro-victim 
uh, advocacy movement. And and it, that's why people buy in, and that's why about 70% of the readers, consumers on television, serial listeners are all women. You know what? I was just thinking that same thing. I know it's true with all of those shows on television. I could never quite understand why women love watching these crime shows because as a woman who, like, lives alone <laughs> – it's just – it's not what I really want to turn on when I'm home alone at night. But I am clearly different than the rest of the population. And I've, I've had it explained to me by people in the TV business that the reason women watch so many of those shows is that they need to see justice done at the end. And it makes them actually feel better and safer to know that uh, the information got out and the bad guy got caught. Is that the way you see it? That's definitely part of it. That's a vein of it. There's another piece I think that that speaks to how early a lot of um, uh, a lot of the true crime readers start, and that's when true crime becomes a genre that tends to be passed down from mother to daughter. Huh. It was described as one woman as uh, that true crime is a secret map of the world. Wow. And I'm trying uh, to imagine our mother no. reading a true crime novel. <laughs> no, maybe that explains it. Unless yeah. it involved, unless it involved a French chef, she was not interested. I was so. just going to say that if Julia Child had been murdered, she yeah. would have gotten to the bottom. Of All that. in on that one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so that's what you know. That's where a lot of it starts is a way of understanding, and and that ties back again to the role of folk tales and fairy tales, which are all kind of. Proportory for women to enter into or young girls to enter into womanhood these are the people you need to be afraid of these are the people who will do this is how you will end up in a bad place and that's really the theme of so much of that type of folkloric work and i think that that this type of narrative true crime being true um that this is that the difference of course is not made up but it's it's even more powerful that way in that it it helps to establish some curbs on behavior maybe and some limitations on what somebody might think is a good idea um and and I understand Liz when you say you don't you wouldn't watch true crime at night I totally get that too and there is a basic fix of good and evil involved here yeah. but I feel there's a, a much larger issue too of trying to understand men and trying to understand why certain people can present themselves publicly one way, but privately be something completely different. Right. It's not just Poldark. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no. Poldark next door is what it is. <laughs> no, I think it's really true because, you know, Verna Gard Taylor, like in your book, it's like she's obviously now engaged, semi-engaged to a guy that she starts to know in her heart is a bad guy, a dangerous, mm -hmm. yeah. violent, scary guy. So that's why the story feels very modern to me because yeah, it's wait, sort of a cautionary tale about what to do if you see yourself getting involved with totally the wrong guy. And, and, and she was a very independent woman who was resisting originally the interference of her brothers who – at one point engaged my my grandfather, who was a former police detective uh, for the Louisville Police Department, and they asked him to investigate Denhart and to come up, you know, the, the brothers did, and he came back with his now famous, you know, summation that, that Denhart is a foul ball. Tell, oh. her to, tell her to get away from him. And, and that was probably the deciding factor for her to make to break up when they convinced her that the glimpses that she was seeing of his temper, the glimpses she was seeing of his controlling nature, those those were only going to get worse. It was nothing that she would he, – there wasn't going to be a bad boy thing where she was going to save him or fix him. Yeah. And, you know, she was able to stop him from drinking for a while, and that was she was he was going to church and sitting next to her, and that probably gave her some level of satisfaction. But he wasn't a he wasn't a rehab worth you know fighting over. Yeah. And she didn't see about Ian. She didn't see herself as a victim either. I mean, she she thought she was going to be able to just give back that big ring and move on. Right. That is exactly right. In fact, if you really think about it, part of the research I I had to do. So I, I had a small gap in 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 the night that they were together. Um, Denhart gave several versions of their time spent in the car between when they left Verna's house and when her body was found on the highway. And there were, there were correlative 
um, testimonies from people that they had bumped into throughout the day. But I, there was still a gap of things that were said between the two of them and what would have set him off. And and what I use for that is I, I, I went to several websites and I talked to people who work with narcissistic sociopathic men. And I just said, what would be a typical response? And so the things that I use, the very few times that I patch something in there that is, and I identify it in the preface of the book, but the times when I, I patch something in there that I don't know if Denhart actually said it, is a fairly high percentage call of what a narcissist sociopath would say under those circumstances. And it's very contemporary. It's just what women say today when they say, I tried to break up with him when we were dating. I tried to break up with him when we were engaged and I tried to get divorced from him. And here's how it happened. And here's, here's how badly it went. And those are the types of things that women face all the time because narcissist sociopaths are very attractive people. They're hugely, and they're very. They do very well with women up to a point, and yeah. then until, that, until they kill you. <laughs> yes, and then it ruins everything. You know, then you, uh, you went to all that trouble to get to China, and you know. So yeah, there, there's a there is a, a real dark side of that that slowly becomes revealed, and it, that's what I hope this story helps to emphasize and 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 picks up on on Anne Rule's work of trying to be a cautionary tale. Well, have you great. have you? Have you uh, gotten the true crime bug? Has it bitten you? Is there going to be another? Are you starting on another investigation? Even do you have more relatives? That more murders in your family? <laughs> or, <laughs> but I will tell you this. So I was thinking about some people ask me, how does this book tie into the last book, um, How to Pray When You're Pissed at God? Right. I know. Yeah. And, and, and there is actually a direct tie in. And then there is a, and then people are, well, what are you going to do next? And I realize I already know what I want to write about next. And I realize I have kind of a trilogy going, which is, it's all, I know, hang on. It's great. It's okay, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Is it, is it JonBenet Ramsey? Is that it? <laughs> Please. No, it's, it's this. It's the, I've, I've always been, I'm just very interested in justice. And it's probably because, and pardon me to the older sisters here, as the as a little brother, you get very focused on justice. As a, as a <laughs> yes, you do. That's just like good. Leon. Yep. 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 Right. It's like what a ripoff. What are you get like how total that- ripoff. Total ripoff. <laughs> and the older ones always feel like there was an entitlement that you had to deal with. That yes, like, yes, that's true. Yes, I did not sign that contract. I don't know what this is about. But anyway, so I, I've always been interested in justice. And what I what I want what I th- realized I think is is how to pray when you're pissed at God is about divine justice. Um, a black night for the bluegrass bell is about earthly justice. And the book that I've already started to research and I traveled to Japan in part to research already um, is about cyber justice. Whoa! Ooh. What is that? What is cyber? What? I can't tell you. It's a good tease, though. Come on, <laughs> that is you a are such a pro, tease. Ian Punnett. Leaving us on the edge of our seats. That's it. Cyber justice is very interesting, and and I think this is where there's a um, there's a lot of there's a there's somebody there's something that can happen on the internet where somebody can literally be murdered, Um, and it sounds weird, but I'll tell you more about that later. Ah, That's well, very intriguing. Well, we always love having you on Satellite Sisters, Ian. You know that. Open door policy here for Ian Punnett. His new book is A Black Night for the Bluegrass Bell. Uh, We'll have all the information about it at SatelliteSisters.com. But I know it's at Amazon and everywhere else, right? Yeah, they sold out at Amazon, so they, um, which is a good problem to have. But acclaimpress.com is the publisher that appears to be, I'm told on Facebook, the fastest way to get a copy. Okay. Some smaller okay. independent chains uh, picked it up. Um, I don't know if it's any of the big stores, but you know, you're just happy that anybody's reading it and anybody's buying it. So acclaimpress.com, I think, is the way to get it before the holidays, maybe. But Okay, um, well, make, we'll, make, we'll make sure there are links to that in the show notes and the, yeah, being sold out, that's a good thing. Well, People Magazine wrote about it, right? So we'll put yeah. a link to that that review. Uh, and the day it dropped, and I felt like a satellite sister right there. I was like, wow, that's <laughs> kind of my, I felt like I'd achieved a level of fame that I never thought I ever would. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Ian, for joining us today. What is uh, what is the Punnett clan doing for Thanksgiving? Are you got any uh, got any good plans? 
So I'm teaching in Ohio this semester and next semester. It will be the first time I've been back um, to Arizona, which is where we live now in Phoenix. My wife has come here several times, but it's the first time I'll have a chance to go back. So I'll, I'll be hitting that 88-degree sunshine very shortly. And, 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 uh, and Itchy and Scratchy, will they be joining? Yep. yep. <laughs> Garn Campbell? And do you sing that little ditty around the table? That's what I want to know. My boys are so tired of hearing me sing that song. They don't have the same reaction to it that I do. <laughs> Which, <laughs> but it is funny. I mean, that that my son Gar, you know, he, he carries on this tradition. And Campbell is just as much a Gar as Gar is. But... You know that I'm just glad I, I I made that nod to the family heritage. I, I hope it's a name that recurs in generations to come. Well, you're talking to the right people. Families are good. Uh, yeah. Ian Punnett, thanks so much for joining us today yeah. on Satellite Sisters. Love you all, and love to Sheila and Monica, and I will look forward to seeing you next time I get to LA. It is always so much fun to talk to Ian Pana, isn't it, sisters? He's the yeah. best. <laughs> he is the best, and singing. Huh? I know. We could have talked for four days. We could still, <laughs> we could have talked all Thanksgiving weekend about this. <laughs> uh, so we are going to wrap up this show. We know Thanksgiving week, a busy week for you, but we just wanted to mention a few shopping tips. A lot of you are starting your holiday shopping now. And our gift to you is that our podcast is always free. Okay. So happy holidays. Satellite sister. <laughs> We just we want to customize gifts for yes. everybody. <laughs> Satellite Sisters is free. Yay. Uh, but your gift to us is if you could support some of our sponsors, that would be great. We mentioned Harry's uh, at the top of the show, but there are a couple of other offers that we've mentioned throughout the fall. So don't forget another great brand that we've had a couple of times this fall is El- so those are four away glossier eloquy and primary in addition to harry's that we figured if you're doing all your holiday shopping i think we got you covered and anyone else who's not covered in this category just get them a copy of you're the best okay <laughs> perfect liz you're absolutely right still good still an excellent book still excellent uh oh and so we should mention by the way speaking of excellent books lee and your book helen of pasadena was selected by the satellite sisters facebook group as the book club book i had nothing to do with that straw poll they were running i did was not like voting for myself over and over and over again so i want to thank carrie who seems to be in charge of the online book club she's making it happen for announcing that helen of pasadena is going to be the next book pick for january 11th i have the date circled on my calendar. So I'll be happy to chime in on the discussion. And I was really touched and honored. So thank you. It's good. It's a perfect time of year to read Helen. Starts at the Rose Parade and goes from there. You know, it's a funny social satire uh, about a woman trying to, you know, reinvent her life midlife. So I hope that you enjoy it if you haven't read it. And if you have read it, read it again and then I'll be there at the discussion. But I was really touched. That was great. It's sometime a boost an author needs. I'm doing some editing on my current manuscript. And so it's good to know people are out there reading the first book. Love it. Okay. So there you have it. It's Thanksgiving week. We are wrapping up the Tuesday show. Sisters, Julie, I won't be with you, but you've already had your Thanksgiving. So congratulations. I want to wish everybody who listens to our podcast a very happy Thanksgiving. Yes. I hope you, we hope we really hope you have a wonderful time with your family and friends. I think one of the things that we are grateful for is that we have such great listeners and such a great community has formed around Satellite Sisters. So thank you for that. And Lee and I'll be foraging in your backyard on Thursday afternoon. So see you then. See you then, Liz. (laughs) Turkey bunt cake. (laughs) Say no more. All right. We are the Satellite Sisters. Don't forget, call your Satellite Sisters.